You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Hello and welcome to this week's BMJ podcast. I'm Berta Twizzleman, one of the BMJ's web editors. This week, the Faculty of Public Health has launched its 12-point manifesto for a healthier Britain. This UK organisation of public health doctors has decided on a wide-ranging set of plans on everything from cycling to fried food. Duncan Jarvis talks to Professor Alan Marion Davis, the faculty's president, about their plans. We look to see really where, um, where people who are working in these, in these particular areas, what their sort of wish list was, if you like, where they felt the, the next step should be. And we're looking really to something which the next government could bring in as, a, as an innovation. Also published online on bmj.com this week is a clinical review into adolescent depression. We talked to Professor Anita Thapar about her article and about interesting developments in the prevention of the condition. So that's very exciting. If we can kind of prevent or delay the onset of depression in young people, that's good. But before all that, I'm joined by Richard Hurley, the BMJ's assistant magazine editor, who's going to take us through this week's news. Hi, Rich. Hi, Berta. So what have you got for us this week? This week I want to talk about alcohol. Um, there are always stories in the lay press um, about alcohol and, um, and lots going on in the BMJ as well. This week there's a story following on from the recent Health Select Committee's report which has criticised the government for being too close to the drinks industry. Um, the report calls for MPs to listen more to doctors groups and the chief medical officer so the government has announced that it's going to introduce a mandatory code to tackle alcohol consumption in England and Wales and among other things it will outlaw all you can drink promotions so-called dentist chairs which involve uh, customers having alcohol poured directly into their mouths. Good grief. <laughs> yeah, I've never seen that. I've never seen that. Um, and to force uh, bars and clubs and whatever to uh, have water, av- available tap water for free. Okay. And, and to force um, establishments to sell smaller measures of wine and beer. In some places at the moment you can only get large glasses. And the government's admitted that the voluntary code has failed. Alcohol is costing the NHS more than £2.5 billion a year. Yes, we had a story about that last week, I think. Yeah. Unfortunately, it looks like the mandatory code isn't going to consider minimum pricing of alcohol, which um, Liam Donaldson called for last year. And it's also not going to tackle very cheap uh, promotions in supermarkets. So, in other words, it's a half measure. Yeah, you could say that. (laughs) Well, that's all very interesting and obviously a story that we're going to keep following. Um, now, what else have you got for us this week? Well, I was also interested in, in another news story this week, which is about a report from Human Rights Watch. It's a report about healthcare workers who are involved in the torture and ill treatment of um, patients in their charge. And where is that happening? All over the place. All, all over the world, the, re- the report looks at it. It's in, it's in Human Rights Watch's World Report for 2010. Um, and examples are um, forcible anal examinations of um, men suspected of homosexual activity in Egypt, forcible vaginal examination to assess virginity in Libya and Jordan. Human Rights Watch says that often healthcare workers are, are taking part in these practices because of abusive government health policies. The the report says that medical societies should educate their members and it goes on to say that the Hippocratic Oath declares that physicians must treat all patients to the best of their abilities and do them no harm or injustice. Well, obviously, those problems will take a fair while to sort out. 
Thank you, Rich. Thanks, Berta. So that's all for this week's news. You can read all those stories online on bmj.com. And if you want to discuss them, go to Dr. Doc, the BMJ's clinical community for medical professionals, or follow us on Twitter. Now Duncan talks to Professor Alan Marion Davis about the Faculty of Public Health's manifesto. Just for our listeners who might not know, could you describe what the Faculty of Public Health actually is? Yes, the, the UK Faculty of Public Health is a, is a professional organisation for the, uh, the leaders in public health in the UK, and they help to lead public health programmes at national, regional and local level. We also get involved in policy and advocacy, and of course this uh, manifesto, which we've, we've jointly uh, launched with the Royal Society for Public Health, is an example of us um, wearing our sort of advocacy hat. There are 12 points in this manifesto. Could you just quickly run through them for us? Yes, I'll just sort of rattle them off, if you like. I must emphasise there are no particular order of priority, but here they go. Um, Number one, a minimum price of 50p per unit of alcohol sold. Number two, no junk food advertising in pre-watershed television. Number three, ban smoking in cars with children. Number four, chlamydia screening for university and college freshers. Five, 20 mile an hour speed limit in built-up areas. Six, a dedicated school nurse for every secondary school. Seven, 25% increase in cycle lanes and cycle racks by 2015. Eight, compulsory and standardized front of pack labeling for all pre-packaged food. Nine, Olympic legacy to include commitment to expand and upgrade school sports facilities and playing fields. 10, introduce presumed consent for organ donation. 11, free school meals for all children under 16 and finally 12 stop the use of trans fats okay now as we said that's a very wide range how did you come up with these we look to see really where um where people who are working in these particular areas what their sort of wish list was if you like where they felt the the next step should be and we were looking really to something which the next government could bring in as a as an innovation and so we wanted something which would be pragmatic would be would be sensible would be measured and would be um something which would have the support support of those people working in the particular fields we're talking about um so really that's that's what we've done and, and we, we haven't put them in any particular order because it would really be for the next government to try to uh, prioritize what it wants to do around public health okay now we've covered a few of these things in the past i'm thinking here about the alcohol minimum pricing chlamydia screening and 20 mile an hour zone what i'd like to talk about now is the use of trans fats um they're used a lot in the food industry. Could you just give us an overview of what they are for, for anyone that might not know? Yes, trans fats, uh, shorthand for um, trans fatty acids. These are the artificial ones produced mostly through our hydrogenation process. I mean, the original margarines of the 100 years ago were produced by hydrogenating uh, vegetable oils or animal oils. Too. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also produced by frying, especially if you, you repeat the frying in the oil and you use the same oil over over again, mm-hmm. you start to get them. Um, trans fats being formed and and the worry with trans fats is that they do seem to have an effect on the lipid balance in the blood and they seem to push up the um the ldls the uh, low density lipoprotein fraction that they seem to push down the hdl cholesterol many uh, experts feel that, the, that they are actually uh, more of a risk um, for heart disease than, um, than than saturated fats so it, it's an issue, and it's it's being picked up in a number of number of places as something which, which uh, would be useful to reduce to a minimum and 
one way of doing that will be to ban their use where it's not necessary. Okay. At the moment, there is an upper limit, um, that, an amount that people can take before it's considered dangerous. And I think, you know, studies have shown that lots of people are already below that. Do you think the banning of it is would actually make that much of a difference? Well, the the the, the limit is uh, the, the the limit from um, from the government from the Food Standards Agency um, is. Two uh, percent of calories to come from no more than two percent of calories to come from trans fats. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the current av- adult average in the UK is around one percent, so that's well inside the the, the limit. Um, our concern, though, is is with certain sections of the population who seem to be eating much more trans fats. So we're thinking here of people on low incomes, children, and young people. Those those people who eat lots of takeaway foods, lots of fast food from the high street. Um, who uh, lots of baked goods, lots of snacks. Their um, intake of trans fatty acids can be double, three times the national average, and they're way over the, safe, the so-called safe limit. It's been banned in some other places, and there's concerns that if it was banned in this country, that that the trans fats would be substituted for saturated fats, which obviously have their own health problems. Have you? Is there any evidence about how it's going in these other countries? Again, we've not we've not looked at that at that evidence. We haven't got that to hand to see whether or not there has been any substitution of saturated fats for the trans fats that's being reduced. I mean, I have to say that the food industry have responded well to the call to minimise the use of um, trans fats, and um, in, in their own branded products, for instance, uh, the, the supermarkets have done very well. Mm-hmm. Um, the concern is not so much with what's um, sold through supermarkets or uh, in the way of manufactured products. It's much more in terms of the, the small trader who's um, running a small operation in the high street selling fried food, uh, deep fried food, um, fast food. That's where we think the issue is, and that's where we would like to see closer inspection, really, to try to make sure that there are good cooking practices uh, to, to keep the levels as low as possible. And indeed, we would like to see some, mand- some mandatory rules around um, what's, what the standard should be in outlets such as that. Okay. Now, obviously, you've aimed the manifesto at the political parties who will be uh, going to the election soon. Have you had any feedback from them, any results? We've certainly we've had a feedback from the Conservative Party, who've read our manifesto with interest and have responded in the, in the sense that they regard them as providing some good ideas, which they'd like to think consider and think about. Some of what we've our ideas are broadly in line with 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 thinking in in all the parties, all the top the top three parties in the UK. So I think some of these we I expect in, uh, we will be pushing it at an open door with a, with a new government. Others I think are a, a much tougher call and um, something which I think will be harder to put into place, especially of course where we have um, deep public sector cuts anyway, and it's not going to be easy to put pre- some of these preventive ideas into practice. I put some of Professor Marion Davis's concerns about trans fats to Dr. Alison Tedstone, who's the head of nutrition science at the Food Standards Agency, the agency that regulates things like trans fat in the UK. Alison, how much of a problem are trans fats in the nation's diet? Does the FSA collect any data on that? Well, we monitor the nation's diet. When we produced advice in 2007, we used the National Diet and Nutrition Survey to look at the intakes of the population. And we saw average intakes of 1%. And we saw no groups with intakes exceeding 2%. 
We are continuing to monitor the situation, though, and we'll publish new data on food intakes actually at the beginning of next month. Coupled with that, we are also um, re-evaluating the composition of uh, foods to see if there have been any shifts in trans fats within those foods. Some supermarkets already have had campaigns to remove trans fats from their own brand foods, and presumably they'll have had to have replaced that trans fat with some alternative. Will the alternatives be any better? You're right that over the years, um, manufacturers have brought down the levels of trans fats greatly in their products. We now know they're about half of what they were a a few years ago, and that's great. But you you do have to be careful, as you flagged up, because actually inadvertently removing trans fats may have an unforeseen consequence of increasing the amount of saturated fat in the diet. And we know that populations' intakes of saturated fat are above recommendations and are contributing to high cholesterol levels and hence coronary heart disease risk in the UK. So at the moment, you'd say that current guidelines for trans fats are adequate and that we don't necessarily need to ban them. We know that a voluntary approach has worked in the UK to bring down trans fat levels. Some countries have introduced legislation, such as Denmark, where they've put a upper limit of 2% of fats and oils being trans fats. We know currently that levels of trans fats within oils in the UK are below that. They're around 1%. There also are issues around naturally occurring trans fats and artificial trans fats, which actually are quite difficult to separate so if you were to ban trans fats, there are, there are lots of practical implications that you would need to consider, not least um, whether you would, for example, allow milk to be marketed, which has quite high levels of naturally occurring trans. Have any of the countries that have already banned trans fats had trouble distinguishing between these natural and artificial ones? I mean, how does their legislation work? Countries are starting off different baselines. Because we have quite low levels of trans fat intake in the UK, we know that natural trans take up about half of the trans fats we consume. For a country that has higher levels of intake, such as the the US, natural trans will be in much lower proportion. The US have allowed manufacturers to put on products that they may be trans fat free, when in fact they're actually not. That's a bit misleading because they can contain up to 0.14% grams of trans fats per 100 grams. And I think that and the problems around separation of the natural and artificial trans fats are problematic. And you can read the full manifesto on the Faculty of Public Health's website at fphm.org.uk. Now we turn to a very important clinical issue, adolescent depression. Duncan talks to Anita Sapar, a professor of adolescent and child psychiatry at Cardiff University. You've written a clinical review that's going up online on bmj.com this week, and it's looking at um, adolescent depression. Could you just quickly run us through what's in your review? The main points that we wanted to bring out in the review, it's aimed at a non-specialist audience. What we've highlighted is that depression in adolescence is common, It's a really severe disorder, and when it occurs in this age group, there's immediate morbidity, it's extremely disruptive, and it's associated with suicidal risk. It's the third leading cause of mortality in this age group. Mm -hmm. 
We also want to highlight that it's not just during adolescence that depression um, is just disruptive, but follow-up studies have shown that there are long-term effects as well. We highlight that it's important for clinicians who deal with young people and families to be aware of the problem so that high-risk adolescents can be screened, assessed and offered appropriate treatment. We focus quite a lot on treatment because there's a lot of uncertainty and controversy about best practice. Mm -hmm. So we spend a bit of time on that. And we conclude with considering some prevention strategies. And this is emerging research and um, particularly prevention strategies in high-risk groups may well become increasingly important. And if we can delay the onset of depression in this age group or reduce the number of episodes, that, that, that would be an important clinical and research goal. Now, you, you've, you've said previously that there's a link between a parent and their child's depression. What is that link? Well, this has been shown, it's well established for very many years. For adolescents where the parents have a history of depression, they're three to four times more likely to have an episode of depression themselves compared to adolescents whose parents don't have a mental health problem. I don't think that in itself is enormously surprising. That's quite well established because we know that for the majority of um, mental health problems and medical disorders, things they can run in families. Of course. What we have to remember, of course, is that a majority of adolescents whose parents are depressed do, do all right. But what we want to focus on is this high-risk group. Previous research, including our own, has shown that, of course, some of, some of this increased risk is because of inherited factors, but there are modifiable environmental risk factors that we need to consider. And, of course, as clinicians, with my clinical hat on, that's where we're really interested is in even where there's inherited risk, where can we make a difference? Okay, so what are some of those modifiable risk factors? There could be environmental risk factors that contribute to, you know, the transmission of parent depression to offspring depression that we can't do things about. Mm -hmm. However, there's some interesting research from the states suggesting that where current parental depression, well, this is actually a study of maternal depression, is treated, there's an improvement in child mental health. The other study, which was aimed at prevention, also targeted a high-risk group that included children of parents with depression and they used a much more intensive and expensive treatment where they did group-based CBT approach which was delivered to the parents and the children and they found that that prevention and intervention resulted in significantly fewer de depressive episodes at one year compared to, control to controls. So that's very exciting if we can kind of prevent or delay the, the onset of depression in young people that's mm, good. Absolutely. However what's interesting in this study the intervention was less effective if the parents had a current episode of depression. There may be other, uh, other potential pathways as well. I think much more research needs to be done on, on this if we're going to translate this into prevention strategies. And we're doing a large study at the moment um, of 340 families where the parents have depression, uh, have had recurrent depression. We're following up the adolescents over four years to look at factors that improve outcomes as well as risk pathways. And hopefully that will help us understand you know understand more so that we can devise better prevention and intervention programs absolutely so obviously this is early work are there any clinical implications at the moment or is this all to be figured out with future no, I, research there, there, there are important clinical implications for anyone dealing with children or parents so if you're dealing with an adult who has 
depression. So that could be in general practice because that's where depression is mainly managed. But of mm-hmm. course, it could be in mental health, adult mental health services. We might not ordinarily think of children. Equally, those of us, myself included, who focus on children, it's important to consider the possibility of parental depression and, and, and intervene there. I also think it's got important policy and services implications because, as I mentioned, most services, adult and children's services, are considered quite separately. And possibly, probably the main exception here is primary care, where mm. GPC would see the whole family. But certainly in the specialist sector, adult and children's services are considered quite separately. And we do need to think better about how we can be better linked up. Well, Anita, that's fascinating and hopefully it will be fruitful research in the future. Thanks for joining us. And again, you can read that clinical review online on bmj.com. That's it for this week. Next week, we'll be talking about antibiotic resistance in urinary tract infections. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.